welcome to the Beyond Green podcast. This is our first inaugural episode. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I'm here with Darren Kaster of the Green Majority. Hello there. And we are here to talk about environment, basically, as a very, very basic set, subset of this discussion. Uh, but more interestingly, actually, about Beyond Green, the environmental future, future of environment and environmentalism. Uh, sort of comes out of the Beyond Green conference. If you weren't there, don't worry. You'll still be. We're not going to touch on too much. It's not going to be some sort of insider sort of thing. But more of, more of an inspired by. Inspired by. There we go. That's a good point. It also reminds me to say that we're not affiliated with Earth Day Canada. So Earth Day Canada don't sue us. And if you did, we don't have any money. So we're sorry. Even less than you. Yes. Um, <laughs> But regardless, we would really love if anyone went to the conference, anyone has any thoughts, if you want to throw it, throw us a bone with some comments or anything like that, by all means, while you're listening, after you're listening, when you're listening to next week's episode, whatever you want, comment, email us, if you have anything you want us, want us to talk about, we, by all means, will be uh, supportive of that. Yeah, very much, very much emphasis on the interactivity and, and, and involvement. If you think we're dead on or dead wrong, let us know. Man, that's a good, that's a, that's a good line. I just made that up now. Wow, well done. One of the big parts of Beyond Green Conference was a hope to keep the carry on the conversation into the in, into the future, and that's something we really want to try and do with this podcast. So add your voice to it. It's a conversation, not just us two. We're not we're not going to yell over you. So yeah, throw us any some email, comment, anything like that, uh, and we'll dive right in. Absolutely. Uh, feelings uh, generally from uh, the conference. Well, you know what? I think a good place to start is is by sort of recapping what we feel Beyond Green meant. Mm, um, good call. Uh, I think the. The tone at the conference, and, and again, we're, we're just referencing the conference so much as, a, a, as an inspirational event, uh, really, really not necessary to the, to the conference. I mean, we can, ha- we can talk about Beyond Green in the general sense, yeah. uh, but as, a, as to the extent that it was inspired by the conference, I think a lot of what they were getting at there was, um, was simply the idea that the traditional environmental movement, uh, is, it's not that it's dead, it's that it's insufficient. Uh, I think that was a large part of what the tone, at least for me, um, in the sense that I've, I've, I've heard many speakers talk about things like uh, we've been hearing for years and it's been disseminated into the general conversation about, uh, you know, buying certain types of products versus other ones, avoid this, avoid that, shop locally. And I think what the Beyond Green is really getting at is that that's critically, critically important, but it's terribly insufficient. Mm-hmm. It won't do the job, mm-hmm. uh, nor will any one of a number of other act, uh, individual activities, neither will just putting up a bunch of solar panels you know, nor will only buying your apples from a local grocer, even if you get all of your groceries from a local grocer, the, it's, it, the ball is just rolling too far too fast at this point. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, actually I do. Um, that's really the, uh, I think you're right. I think a big part of what, of what we heard a lot was, we've been doing X for a long time, we need to start doing Y. Or X has been happening for a long time, but Y isn't, isn't happening enough. Mm-hmm. Or it's X has never created Y. The sort of the constant sort of flow of, basically, the the, the tone was it, what we're doing is not working to some mm-hmm. extent. Um, I think you saw that all over the place with many of the different different uh, speakers, especially the ones who are more environment sort of based. And it's, it was interesting. You could sort of tell the more and more serious you got, the more and more tone of that sort of nature you got. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much so. Like you sort of had some of those. I went to a couple workshops that were sort of. You know, people less environmentalists, more just people who are interesting, or people who had some sort of specific thought on a small part of it, mm-hmm. and they were very still much like this is just a cool thing, and that, that was really fun. But when you got to the higher, more embedded, I guess, environmentalists, you really got that sort of we have to change our tactics, we have to do something different. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that sort of also flips into sort of the environmental future part of this, of what we're going to be talking about, which is sort of, th then what does this different look like? And not just different in a, um, in an environmentalism sense, but different in a, what the world will look like. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to move towards a more sustainable, uh, greener economy and that sort of stuff. You know, what the world will look like, what, how we have to change the world itself was sort of the second half of that, I think. Well, one of the things that I was thinking uh, while we were listening to the climate action panel that was there um, was a, a bit of a, a noticeable tone shift from some of, uh, from some of our prestigious speakers. Uh, at that particular panel, there was uh, Cam Fenton, Keith um, Stewart, Keith Stewart uh, and Spore Berman, and uh, the U University Beth of Toronto. Uh, Beth, thank you, yes. Um, and and it was the tone, but what I mean by tone shift was that it, I, I've been hearing, you know, as someone who's been sort of intensely paying attention to these sorts of things since basically since I started doing the show, so, you know, about six or seven years now, and vaguely aware of them for a couple of more years than that, and, you know, taking some classes just about the history of the movement, it seems rather in, sort of stark, uh, the difference, because before what it was... Uh, even like let's even go back to sort of the quote unquote beginning of environmentalism, which was or at least modern environmentalism, which is the whole thing of with like Silent Spring, that idea of we need to address toxins because toxins are dangerous and or you know killing all the thing and pesticides we're killing all the birds and and everything like that and it was the whole idea behind Silent Spring uh, was that there's really like even people who work specifically on a specific issue don't talk about their specific issue anymore. Mm. So even a climate change campaigner, somebody like Cam Fenton, will within a few words almost have already, <clears throat> within a few sentences, will have already brought it up to this massive macro level. Mm. There seems to be a generalized acknowledgement that there is no such thing as a silo of any of these issues, mm. and that we're talking about a broken system at this point. Mm. And I think that's a really big change. It has a lot of really big implications for not only what the problems are, but how you go about dealing with them. Yeah, oh, it's true. I actually, it's something that's been. I think it's been a slow shift, and I think it really was highlighted at, at the conference, and and is being highlighted now by environmentals overall. I remember a conversation in uh, in a, an environment class I had a couple of years ago, uh, in which I was talking with uh, one of our professors, Doug McDonald at U of T, fantastic guy. But his question was, "Who here really wants to deal with climate change?" And everyone's hand went up, and he and he remarked on the shift that he had seen during his time. He's like. I don't know, he's 70, maybe 80, um, probably 70 if he watches this. I'm sorry if you got your age wrong. Um, <laughs> but it, it was interesting. He was, his big point was when he was an environmentalist, um, he, everyone had their issue. There was the pollution guy. There was the, you know, there was the toxins person. There was the anti-nuclear person. There was all these other subsects of people. And everyone was doing their own thing. It was like, let's fix our corner of society. Mm -hmm. And that's gets completely gone now. It's and, not. And I don't remember who, but that was part of actually somebody's talk. The whole yeah. idea about clean your. Oh, it was Adria. Yeah, uh, Adria Vassal yeah. uh, brought that up. If you know, clean your own little mm -hmm. uh, corner, and if we all do that and link arms. But I think there's an acknowledgement that that's insufficient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of. I think for a long time, environmentalists, uh, partially probably not to look scary or sound scary, sort of came out and said things like, you know, we're just, we're working within the system to fix this part of the system. So and it's just I, not happening as much more. I, I'm sorry. I actually yeah. want to. I want to redirect you onto that for yeah. a minute. D to what extent do you think that it's a, 
it's a poor choice of words, but mm. I can't think of a better one. Sure. To what extent do you think that those sort of big name environmentalists are being dishonest? And and that was mm. the word I, that I was sort of uncomfortable with using the word dishonest. Right. But I mean that you're sort of presenting a case that's sellable, mm -hmm. and then there's what you actually think. Yeah. And and to an extent. Most people have to do that, and I think that you and I are in a position where we're some of the few people who don't have to do that, yeah. uh, because currently, at least, we're not supported by any sort of funding, so we don't have anyone we're going to sort of upset, yeah. really. You know, worst case scenario, nobody listens to this. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, there's been, uh, for instance, I even like to reference, it's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done, was uh, when I had the, the wonderful opportunity to talk to James, uh, Dr. James Hansen mm. from NASA Space Goddard Institute, and there's that joke you've heard me use a couple yeah. of times about where he, I said, you know, what sort of technology should we be investing in? And he leans in and goes, space travel. Yeah. And I, I like that joke, A, because it shows this person who normally comes off quite dry as having a, an amazing sense of humor. Mm -hmm. But the, the other sort of aspect was that he wasn't entirely joking. No, yeah. And, and that's something that's like, you know, it's, it's the sort of like thing where you like, you joke about it before something becomes normalized. Mm. And I think the idea like, and that's something that I think is an interesting topic is that gulf between sort of your average citizen and your average environmentalist, the, the entire worldview that they're looking at is completely different. Mm. And that's part of why we have to do that. I mean, I'm in, I'm someone who like, I've sort of partially already emotionally accepted that we might be wifing out most of the life on this planet. Mm. And that's such a stark gulf, massive void of difference from your average citizen who maybe is starting now to, on average, become concerned about what the implications of climate change might be. They're still orders of magnitude off the sort of the people who really sort of live and breathe this stuff. Mm. Um, can you comment on that? But also, can you comment on do you think that maybe we're sort of because we're in an echo chamber, maybe we're overreacting? I don't right. know. Uh, no, I think that's that's spot on. I think, and it's been happening for a while. What's interesting, actually, is two things. One, I think it's happening less and less. I think environmentalists are sort of realizing that just just presenting their case in the most positive manner hasn't been working, and you're hearing so you're hearing this more apocalyptic language from people more and more and more. Like even the Pentagon, that the Tom Rand's favorite thing about it: if you get five or six degrees of warming, life as we know it will cease to exist. Like, this is the Pentagon. Yeah. Um, so people are moving towards that kind of language that's more along the lines of it. But I still think there is a huge gulf between the immediate, what are people immediately saying, and what they really think. And I, we, we just, I think we discussed this during our little media, our culture uh, mm -hmm. workshop at the end of the Beyond Green Conference, of the idea that, in reality, what everyone says is, we need a carbon tax, or we need a price on carbon. That's the big one. Cost of carbon is, is, cli is climate realities... Uh, talk basically that's what that's, the, that's what they go for but no one no one bothers to continue that thought uh probably because it sounds bad but if you continue that thought from if you start with uh we need to put price on carbon the next thought is everything has to cost more that's the next thought and then the third thought after that is well what about poor people and then the fourth thought is there needs to be a massive redistribution of wealth well, and, and I, before you even get to that one, mm. the, the, we need to help poor people. The One of the things I want to comment on, on that is, uh, aside from the fact that I think you nailed it with that, mm. <laughs> was, the, was simply the fact that isn't it so funny when you know, we're complaining about uh, having to spend money on social services and we're all worried about our jobs and you know, middle class doesn't want to help out the poor because they're so worried about their own finances, mm. which I think is justifiable. Yeah. I think the middle class and the, and the poor, and the poor um, are being royally screwed over. Uh, and it's we're we're experiencing one of the greatest thefts of wealth in the from the poor to the wealthy in the history of mankind right now, but it's that like you know it's 
how quickly sort of the, the idea that, you know, we do the, the fact that you can get the middle class under these six or economic times to say, ah, we to worry about the poor when the rest of the time they seem only kind of worried about themselves. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then the time, the only time the poor comes up is when it's an excuse for inaction. Right. I guess that was sort of was just all I wanted to zero in right. on there. I don't even I don't even necessarily know if it's excuse for excuse for inaction on this case. I think like maybe you know, I think that's valid a valid point. I my point is much more that environmentalists don't like environmentalists don't want to sound like socialists because socialism has so been effectively demonized mm. uh, in our society in our world that environmentalists have to want to basically want to say there should be a cost of carbon and then the free market will figure it out. Um, unfortunately, environmentalists are almost always left wing people who then also want to help the poor. And so, like, I think the problem is it's 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 the environmentalists have such a conflicting sense of ideologies in that they cannot like. I remember a while back I wrote a, a a video which remains our most popular video about factory farming, mm-hmm. um, and at base the end of it was sort of like you should not be able to buy a burger for four dollars. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all these interesting ways of getting around around this ex, you know, increased expense, but basically everything has to cost more than it does. There's just no like the idea of externalities. Which you know, I'm not sure how. Depending on what, where you are in environmental literacy, idea of externalities, sort of the market paying for damage and the stuff it does to the outside world. The most important thing you should know about externalities is that there aren't supposed to be any. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It's it's interesting because even the even acknowledging that externalities brought meaning being brought into the system, literally part of that it has to imply more money has to be being spent by somebody. Right. I was watching the 24 hours on rea- of reality, the climate reality talk. And one guy posted about, uh, I love the idea of cost of carbon, but what will we do when things, co- but won't that make everything cost more? I'm worried that it'll make everything cost more. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> like, things should cost more. And then, of course, but, but then you can't, but then, of course, the problem is you can't say things should cost more because of the sort of the social injustice of having everything cost more. Well, and when, when we sort of were, were brainstorming about what to do with this first podcast, I'd warned you that I was going to somewhat disagree about that point right. uh, as well, which is simply uh, the idea that I, there's been a lot of good reports coming out recently, um, stories coming out, rather. Um, a few of them I've seen through a show I'm a fan of from the U.S. called The Young Turks, uh, but where they've been highlighting, uh, highlighting like movies like that Walmart movie where it's the high cost of low wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the report that I was watching yesterday that, that I think is highly relevant to this uh, is the idea that people say, well, I don't want to pay fast food workers more because then the food will cost more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what they don't realize is that the reason that by those corporations being able to pay those companies so little money, they're actually shifting the responsibility for their social services from the employee themselves, if they've been paid enough to pay for them, they can't, to then the company, which doesn't want to pay for them. So the company is then forced the state to pay for them. Mm-hmm. So in essence, whether you eat at McDonald's or not, you are paying for McDonald's people to have social services instead of the company. Mm. So those costs are still there, right? Right. It's just that we're hiding them. So it's it, in, in so in reality, in a lot of senses, we're not paying more. Right. It's simply about having clean math, right? Right. And it's and it's simply you're just paying for it somewhere else. Mm. And what's important about paying for it where the actual cost comes from was that it allows economics to actually function. If people don't want to pay for stuff, they won't. Mm-hmm. But right now, you're not allowing them that choice because you're putting it, you're hiding it in their taxes. Right. You're hiding it somewhere else where they can't see it. There's no line item that says $37 to McDonald's employees for their social services. Mm-hmm. If people saw that, there'd be a 
outrage. There'd be riots in the streets if people realized that uh, the number I heard yesterday was $2 billion that the U.S. people pay to McDonald's to cover the social services that they don't pay for their own employees. So I I think there's a lot of economics and it's very complex and I don't want to spend the whole time talking about economics, but... It's, it's not even necessarily true. Uh, let me right. say that. It's not even necessarily true that things would cost more. Does there need to be a massive system overhaul and mm-hmm. may things cost more? Sure. But it's not a carte blanche if we do the environment, all prices go up right. yeah. situation. And I, and Definitely I, not. Yeah. And I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't actually necessarily I, – I fully agree, and I think that's, that's very accurate. Um, my thing was largely that really for the – that takes a very middle class understanding of what this pricing would mean. But if you're the if you're the McDonald's employee, um, and your food starts getting charged two dollars more, it doesn't you aren't paying any taxes anyways, so you're still getting a shit wage, and you're and you're not getting any more money back. Um, and so then then what do you do? That's that's where I think that's where the thing that comes in because it, well, and that's where it's just getting complicated because as the whole point and theme of this entire yeah. podcast is is that we can no longer deal with these situations in isolation. And so how quickly do we get caught up in a discussion about fair wages and economics when we're trying to talk about the environment? And and I think the point that we're trying to carry today is that you can't any longer do that. It Mm -hmm. isn't any longer possible to deal with any of these issues in isolation. Yeah. And I think actually that is an excellent time to throw our first break, or our only break. We're on one break, a little music break. Uh, This is First Rate People, our music of the day. Enjoy.
Welcome back to the Beyond Green follow-up podcast. If you're just tuning into us, which I'm assuming you're not because this is a podcast, but we'll, I'm used to doing my radio shows. We'll pretend this is radio. If you're just joining us, I'm here with Stefan Hostetter. I'm Darren Keister with The Green Majority, and uh, we're just talking about wrapping up some of the Beyond Green issues and uh, what we were just discussing there during our brief music break while we listened to that great tune by... First Rate People. That's the one, First Rate People. Uh, is uh, just that idea that you were sort of mentioning, bringing up the idea of uh, geoengineering, which I think is, uh, from a science fiction point of view, is really cool, and from an actually doing it point of view, is freaking terrifying. Yeah. Um, should be one of the scariest things, and, and I sort of, I mentioned this uh, during uh, the climate panel that, that you were raising uh, a point about there during the break, um, but was just the idea that the fact that we're even discussing this sort of means that we've lost. Mm. I mean... Geoengineering is the sort of thing you do when you don't have any cards in your deck left. Yeah. Like it's it's your last card. Yeah. And just even the idea that we're having serious discussions about it upsets me terribly. Oh yeah. Uh, the th sorry, the thing I was going to reference was that I mean that's the other word for that is terraforming. That's what they did in the movie Aliens. Um, and not not that I'm trying to say that this will make aliens rush in from outer space. The point is is that. Like, this is stuff that's, like, this is future. This is technology we don't have. We're trying to desperately develop technology that doesn't exist to deal with something. Like, you're screwing with the climate. That's what got us into this mess. And, yes, there's a chance that we could slow down or hypothetically, you know, needle in a haystack, stop climate change. But it's also possible, and as far as, far as we know, equally possible at this point, because we know so little about what it is, the whole point is that we don't understand the climate, that's how we got into this mess in the first place, is that there's an, at this point, equally likely chance that we could make it worse, considerably worse, wipe out all life on Earth worse. You know, we're messing with a system we don't understand, and, and I don't know about you, Stefan, but it scares the living shit out of me. Yeah, like, I think that's was uh, I, I thought of this, actually, when we were, we were discussing uh, the d gulf between people and... And environmentalists, because I think people who run here about geoengineering will have two reactions. One, they'll just have that sort of trust in science, being like science fixes things, it's it'll be fine. And I think that's really what the what what oil companies are really trying to say. That's what the oil companies sell is is that uh, yes, this may be a, um, a hill mary pass, but like we'll do it. And so we don't have to, don't worry about all all our all our all our fossil fuel emissions because this is going to work, so we'll solve it. Um, and I think the other half of that is, is, is people who would be absolutely terrified, rightfully so, of this, you know, this is a system that's worked for so long, pumping tons and tons of sulfur into their atmosphere is an insane idea. It's kind of, I, I kind of like, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, comparisons, uh, mm -hmm. I am. And so for me, it kind of feels like the idea, you know, that, um, there's some really neat technology that's come out around... Uh, people with physical disabilities, so people that are missing limbs, for instance, uh, those re that that runner that has both his legs missing with yeah. the cool bent piece of metal yeah. thing. This is like in cutting your, voluntarily cutting your leg off yeah. to put on one of those things. <laughs> it might be really cool technology, but if you don't need it, you don't want it. Right. Yeah. Sorry, no, that's all I wanted. Oh, yeah, no, it's totally fair. That, that, <laughs> that, 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 that's an excellent. That's an excellent analogy, actually. Um, but yeah, so I, what I want to get to is sort of this idea of geoengineering and the gulf between environmentalists and regular people is that 
no environmentalist wants to see you geoengineer it. That's like the that's always been sort of the Hail Mary pass of the fossil fuel industry, and very much not something that what we would consider an environmentalist would really support. Um, I'm sure there are a couple. I'm um, sure Jans Bjorgen or whatever that guy's name is probably supports it, um, but I don't really consider environmentalists, so we'll move on. Um, that, that, that'll be next week's discussion is what makes an actual environmentalist. So we got into oh, that yeah. conversation too, but I won't yeah. sidetrack you. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get there next week. Um, but no, yeah, I, I really think that, uh, so while, even though that's a huge concern and every environmentalist is against it, it was so interesting to see at that Beyond the Brink uh, climate panel that you, that you ran, um, when someone asked, and someone asked, I honestly kind of was like, uh, again, like it's something that always gets brought up. It's something that's never really, never really gets answered. Interestingly, usually everyone, usually the, the, the stock answer is it can't happen. Basically the stock, the stock environmentalist answer is we can't get, let it get that far. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time I've heard someone say, yes, it will probably happen. And we're going to have to start, we're, we're going to start seeing some attempts to regulate that in the future. I think and that, that was like, what? Yeah. We're, this, is, this is how far we've gone. We've gone far enough that we've actually decided that it will probably happen. And that blew my mind. I think, I think part of that, though, is that um, I, I think it's that, in my opinion, it's people, have a, people who, were, who were talking about um, mm. people like the panelists. Yeah. Um, I think they accepted that a little while ago. Mm. But I think it's part of that idea about like you don't want to admit that you might have to go there until you really, really do because mm. you don't want to get less informed people who maybe don't understand how complex it is to say, oh, okay, well, we've got this, so I'm not going to try doing this. Yeah. I think it's an important messaging technique from a tactical position right. to keep it off the table as long as possible. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and think, I think it's purely tactics. Right. But, I agree. I, I think the tactics idea brings back to exactly just how, you know, the idea of what we were talking earlier about how trustworthy are these are, 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 are environmentalists' messages. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, don't get me wrong, I think environmentalists are very, very trustworthy. But and that's why I wish, and in the same thing for you, I, I wish we could come up with a better word for it. But yeah. they're kind of being intentionally dishonest. Yeah, well, I think for a constructive end. But yes. that's kind of an ends justify the means argument. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's very, it's very politiciany. It's very, which I think, we, which I think environmentalists would be almost good to uh, to accept. Which, I, I think, if I can do a plug for my workshop, which yeah. is now on YouTube, we that's very much what we discussed was was about how right. to how to speak to a politician. So see see a link in the description for the uh, reference to. My workshop from yeah. the conference for that. But yeah, I'm questioning whether or not environmentalists should take the tactic that everyone else has taken, which is don't be fully clear about your aims and just speak about the good stuff, which has really worked a lot of the time. Mm. Um, or if we should take the more activist approach, which is I'm not apologizing for my thoughts. These are my thoughts. I'm gonna go out and tell you them. And I think we're seeing a, we're seeing a very we see sort of different battles of the uh, Environment Defense Fund and sort of these bigger groups mm-hmm. are very much taking a very strategic tactile approach to this whole thing, which I think is very much required. And then you see the more guerrilla sort of Greenpeace kind of groups just being like, no, we're gonna we're just gonna yell at you, and you're eventually gonna listen to us because this is how bad it is. And, mm-hmm. I th- and we see both those tactics a lot. And I think I have to say that my and and this may simply be my personal. Uh, my personal position has changed, mm-hmm. or I might, uh, as in like the, my analysis of the reality of our current situation, mm-hmm. maybe has evolved over time, which mm-hmm. is, it has, but yeah. this may be a factor or it may not, uh, or it simply be that I've now been convinced, but mm-hmm. I'm far more open to those sorts of tactics, mm-hmm. not for my own personal thing, but I used to, I used to be, anyone who's been a long-time listener of my show knows that I love to use Greenpeace as a joking example of how to do things wrong. Mm-hmm. I think they used to do a lot of things wrong. Mm. Um, but 
I've been slowly convinced as I keep using them as a scapegoat, people have reminded, have pointed me out to things that they're doing sort of more recently. And I have to say I'm more and more on board with mm. sort of their style of tactics. And, and again, I don't know, maybe the, if this is a personal change for me or if the situation has changed mm. making their tactics now the right tactics. Right. I, think, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I think I think there's definitely value in in discussing the uh, take to the streets, yell at people, not yell at people, but yell at you know the world cause, at large, cause a ruckus. Yeah, exactly. Cause a ruckus approach. And I think part of it is I I, I'm, I was sort of with you for a long time. I I really thought that the kind of just shotgun. I'm going to yell at the world approach was was foolish and kind of and, and kind of made the whole movement look worse. But, but I think, no, but was that because like because I mean their tone was this is desperate. That's why we we're in the streets, yeah. and it was just that the rest of us didn't agree it was that desperate. I think. I think that's part of it, and I maybe think, now I, we do. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's definitely part of it. I think also. Um, which think, in hindsight makes me feel a bit foolish because it clearly was that desperate. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> but but I also think I also, I also think part of it was that uh, I'm very much I want to take a. A measured approach. I'm a very measured person in my life. I'm not going to jump in front of uh, a car to sort of get them to care about something. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to like. That's not my. That's not my first instinct. I mm-hmm. think very much, but I think part of this sort of whole change of tone you've seen from everyone uh, involved is we tried the measured approach. We tried to go to the conferences. I think what was so interesting was two different speakers, uh, both uh, Spora Berman and Ben Pallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of them spoke of their just utter depression after the COP15 conference. And I really think, to some extent, the measured approach died at that conference. I think that was, to some extent, that was the last gasp of let's work through the system completely and just get our, pe- get our governments to reform. I think that tone was carried by almost all of the of the keynote speakers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, they, they pretty much all seemed to be on the page of. They were coming at it from different perspectives, but they sort of all lost their idealism that they thought that that tactic could work. And they are, they've all. I mean, they all seem to have a not have given up. I didn't sense that anybody no. there had given up, but they're kind of out of ideas. Yeah, it was short of, and and that seems to be, and and that's what part of the caution is too, is because. In this situation where we're currently fighting this thing of the Canadian government specifically, mm-hmm. calling environmentalists excre- extremists, and they're like, well, we, they haven't been. But what's kind of messed up is that they're at a kind of point when they're kind of like, well, we weren't when you were accusing us, but now we, we really don't know what else to do because yeah. you so successfully shut the conversation down, shut the conversation down by threatening that we might become extreme, that we're almost left with nothing left but to become extreme. Yeah. Yeah, which I, is I don't know if that's like the most brilliant tactical move ever on the behalf of Harper, or if that was just sort of a a, a value added bonus for him. Right. But I don't know. Maybe maybe Harper completely read the writing on the wall and and made a brilliant strategic move. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think what was interesting was there was it seemed like every single speaker who was really heavily in the room that that we that was there talking during that time, every single one of them had a story of when they lost their faith in the system. Yeah. Every single one of them. Even the ones that were advocating still working through the system. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We're like, it's kind of pointless. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Like, you had the great story from Keith Stewart about when he came to a politician with all of his data and all of his all of his information, and, like, this is what climate change is going to happen, this is what we need to do about it, and the, and the response was, you're giving me a solution, but I don't think I have a problem. Yeah, highly, highly quotable line. Yeah. You're giving um, me a solution, but I don't think I have a problem. Yeah, and, and basically, yeah. His, to finish the thought, basically, the, the, the politician's belief was, like, lo- show me how I'll lose four seats, and then we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
and everyone sort of I think I think COP fifteen sort of worked the same way for uh, for some of the other speakers and for I think a lot of the environmental movement. I think that was sort of I really think that was the last last gasp of just we can do this through laws um, without anything else. I mm-hmm. think that was really very much the last uh, hope. I think for a completely measured approach, and I think I think at least I think that's partially why both our views have sort of switched. And I also think, well, part of uh, as a complete aside, I think one of the reasons why I find Greenpeace less silly is when you're talking about seal hunting. I don't care nearly as much as when talking about climate change. Like I want to protect the seals, good for you, but you know, going crazy about that doesn't seem as reasonable as going crazy about climate change. And and I think maybe. I, Largely, sort of, I, I'm glad you said that. It, it sort of gave me the right words, I think, to describe why I used to pick on Greenpeace more than I currently do, which mm-hmm. is that regardless of what they're dealing with, they're sort of, as an organization, and this is sort of, it's hard to paint an entire organization, especially one as large and influential mm-hmm. as Greenpeace, but I've always largely felt like their reactions to things, whether or not the issue itself was an important one, was a very emotional reaction. Yeah. And I'm just not someone who likes reacting emotionally. It's not that I don't. I, in fact, am very emotional person but I try not to react to things emotionally and I think that's the big problem yeah. that I had and, and that's what you put your, your finger on the on the button there with yeah. that is that when you were dealing with sort of climate change now in almost 2014 an extreme emotional response I think is starting to be justified mm. uh, or may have already been justified yeah. and it just took me too long to get there um, because of my natural not wanting to feel like that I yeah. don't want to react to things that way but on things like seal hunting, yes, I still think it's bad, but it was like, for me, it was way beyond the pale yeah. as far as the, the, the response uh, level. Yeah, I, I think we're sort of zeroing in on the fact that it might just simply be that on this issue, they had it right, but because we disagreed with them on other issues and their reaction was identical to everything that maybe got the wrong idea, which maybe is, a, maybe, um, is something that maybe Greenpeace just could look at, which yeah. is to say that perhaps if we want to bring more people on board with our, you know, taking 30 people maybe next time it's 300 people go and get arrested by the russian government yeah if you sort of measured your tone a little bit yeah into yes this issue requires this response but seal hunting is terrible but we don't you know yeah we have to tone our response or it just looks like we're we're upset about everything yeah yeah and, and I, that I, turns people off exactly yeah i don't i don't think we're gonna i don't think Greenpeace is gonna take that i don't, even think, I but, don't think they but then i also <laughs> yeah exactly but i also think i think you're like you're onto something i think there would be i i think we we're talking this about talking this before about how if Cam Fenton's favorite, uh, he's a speaker at Beyond Green, one of his favorite stories is SNIT, which was a group that sort of went, that fought for desegregation. And if Greenpeace wanted, and I've always thought that if, that if Greenpeace or someone wanted to create a, create a SNIT for climate change, like, yeah, let's bring 300 people, uh, you know, random kids from across the world, get them all arrested by Russia... Um, not the most effective way. Maybe you want to go to the tar sands in Alberta instead. Can we, can we go get arrested by a different country? I really, really exactly, don't want to yeah. go on Russian jails. Yeah, I don't want to be can near we? Russia. I'll go, yeah, exactly. That's, that's why I suggested the oil sands in Alberta. I'll get arrested by Canada. I do not want to get arrested by Russia. Very much hope the Arctic 30 get released. I would very much, I, I'm sure they will eventually. Um, but I think, I think that's, a, that's, that's the kind of thing that now, maybe 10 years ago, many environmentalists would have scoffed at. Whereas I think now, anyone who's doing anything deserves respect and deserves to be supported. I think if you're fight, in fighting climate change, because I think it's that big of an issue. Mm-hmm. And well, and this brings us sort of full circle back to exactly where we started, mm-hmm. which was the idea of um, simply the fact that you can no longer talk about any of these things in isolation, and it's it's almost impossible to stay on topic when talking about this anymore. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it really is. And what was interesting, though, is that I, I got the sense 
and there's no criticism of theirs, but just simply as a as a tonal shift, because generally we're talking about between the present most of the presenters and the keynotes, or just people giving the workshops, like you and me, generally are in a slightly older category than the types of people who are going to the conference. Mm. So, on average, we're going to have a little bit more experience um, just being a part of the movement, mm-hmm. just in a general yeah, sense. Sure. And and that was something that I noticed was a very I felt like the guests, mm. the attendees, mm. were somewhat shocked by what they saw, mm. and, and not shocked by any of the information. Mm. I don't think they learned a ton about climate change there. Right. I think they learned a ton about the state of activism, mm. and, and I think that was the biggest message. And if anyone happens to be listening, again, we are asking people, we're trying to make this an interactive conversation, yeah. please do comment. What did you think yeah. um, was your reaction to it? That was sort of my analysis of what I saw other people, but I didn't really get a chance to ask them. So right, if yeah. you would like to comment with what your feelings were, what you learned, um, we'd be really interested to hear that specifically. But I don't know, for me, would you disagree? Uh, I think to some extent, yeah, I, what I found very interesting and honestly a little distressing, so like again, if you're listening to this and you don't agree with me, by all means, tell me, um, was that the people who I felt were really in this... Um, like in the fight, like the people that I, that I, that I, when I looked around, like people I knew who were already, you know, working for an environmental organization or doing sort of the facilitators and sort of stuff for them, climate change was the thing. Uh, what I found sort of is, is the climate change beyond the brink panel had basically the biggest speakers we had with Keith Stewart, Sapporo Berman, uh, Beth Saban and Cam Fenton. Like as far as people who know what the hell is going on. By far, probably the most stacked panel there. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard the food panel was good too, but I think this was was the panel to be at. And I know that, and it was clear that the people at Earth Day Canada, that's where they were there. That's like every single higher up in Earth Day Canada went to that one panel, but nobody else did. I was shocked about how not how few people were at that panel talk, which is a good thing we recorded it, and that will also be on the YouTube channel yeah, as well. Yeah. Because so was, yeah, yeah, it was check very it out. Please do check it out. But it was that's and I sort of I tried to get that into my question at the end was, was here. I was sort of felt like the the people who are just getting into environmentalism really do want to get into that sort of recycling. You know, eating local kind of like small thing. I guess a good a good quote from one again. It was she was saying that eating local was the new recycling. I think it really is. Mm. I think it's the issue that brings people who want something they can do right now but don't have to deal with these big big issues. It really brings them in. And I think I really think there was the there was that was clear at that talk and at the sort of event was that most of the people who went there from high schools and sort of younger people. They were not there for climate change, and we need them there for climate change, and we need you there for climate change. And I think what you were saying about where the food panel was more mm-hmm. brought up, exactly, and what I wanted to echo about that point was that it's, it's not that the food thing's not important. Yeah. It's that all of those other issues now at this point, I think we sort of, the higher-ups, yeah. you know, people who were there from Earth Day Canada, all, all, I'd say almost exclusively probably almost all of the presenters, mm. and us, and... Most of the people who sort of either do this for a living or pretend they do it for a living, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you and me at this yeah. point, um, in the sense that there, all of these issues are important, mm-hmm. but the only way to make sense of them is if you discuss them all within the context and frame of climate change. Yeah. And I don't think that's disseminated to the troops yet. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think there's a, there's a level of importance 
uh, that that surrounds this issue. And like, because like, why my like when I if I ever have to explain to someone why food issues matter, it's like yes, yeah, sustainability is important, but really it's because we can't keep offering, we can't keep driving our food halfway across the world because we can't keep burning the fossil fuel, or because we can't keep offering corn subsidies that dramatically increase, uh, or because we can't keep having factory farms that sort of do this whole thing. Um, but we're sort of running out of time, so I'm going to sort of try to wrap this up here as sort of a environmental future, where we're going to go. That sort of gives you an example of what we're going to do. Um, again, by all means, comment. Uh, the band was first-rate people. I'm going to give us each one last chance to sort of give our last thoughts on this topic, sure. and then we'll then we'll play ourselves out, and that'll be it. Um, but yeah, so please do comment and talk about, about the sort of issues. Um, first-rate people was the band, and take it away for your sort of final thoughts on this issue. Uh, sure. No, I just, I, I, I just, I think the, I, I just wanted to double down on mm -hmm. our, on our sort of conclusion there that that all of this needs to be um, done through a perspective of climate change the, the thought that I want to leave people with to sort of to sort of go out with was what does this mean and we can get into right. this in a future podcast yeah. but what does this mean for the local food movement does yeah. that mean we now start going to farmers markets and, and saying to people I'm really sorry but if you're not framing this within a context of climate change it is a really big liability because we can't use the thing that's now brought the vast majority of people who are interested in the environment on board which mm. is other stuff than climate change yeah. and tell them that their thing that they're excited about, we just finished bringing them on team and now we're going to put them on the bench. Yeah. It seems like a massive liability. So yeah. where are the options for that? Do we have to just sort of let them putter around in their other issues for a little while before we tell them that it's not important enough and we need them on, on mm -hmm. this team? And it's not an either or, but I've, I'm afraid that the public will see it that way. So yeah. more than a final comment, I have a final, my final question is, mm. how do we how do we uh, disseminate that information to the troops that this really, if this issue isn't important, none of it's important. Right, yeah. Because I feel like we can agree that that was the perspective of most of the name brand people that were at that conference and that I'm meeting generally just in my yeah. entire life is that that's the case. But how do we do that? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, which we'll obviously have to talk about on future podcasts. I think there's a lot of thoughts, uh, which is interesting as well, was simultaneously while everyone was saying, while everyone was sort of echoing that sort of we have to be caring about environment, every one of them also was sort of simultaneously trying to walk this very odd line of everyone has to care about the environment, but we have to ev let everyone do, or everyone has to care about climate, but we have to let everyone care about climate in their own way. As if I can throw out a last thought of maybe maybe get people thinking of how to actually do that, maybe the solution is provide people with this outlet. Uh, like, you know, yes, uh, you, you can spend your entire life fighting for more sustainable food practices in Toronto, uh, but if as long as you agree to vote the right way and come out to the couple of big rallies we need you to, then we're square. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be the balance we have to float, but by all means, everyone should get at us. To give everyone a sort of prelude to next week and future episodes, what we're going to do is sort of go through some of the actual other talks that were given, try to get more people on board that way, and by all means, we're trying to continue the conversation. So if you comment on this, we will reference it next episode and discuss whatever you want us to discuss, because we're trying to carry on the conversation, and it's not a conversation just between Darren and I, it's a conversation with everyone. Absolutely. And in, and in fact, I will say with certainty, and, and we can be monitored by mm. this, by, by simply commenting on the post that this is on, mm. as long as it doesn't get nuts, as yeah. in like 50 or more, yeah. uh, I guarantee you if you make a comment, we will address your comment. Yeah. So absolute guarantee, and unless this gets completely out of hand, which I doubt that it will, yeah. um, if you comment, we will address your comments. Ask us a question. Make your own comment. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your time and for listening. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And this is uh, First Rate People, the place up. 
I'm not too sure. 